the preparation of God's mission and missionary. And so turn in your Bibles with me, please, uh, to the book of Jonah. It's in the Old Testament, the book of Jonah, the preparation of God's mission and missionary. Because there comes a time in the life of every Christian when we hear God say to us in some way or the other, this is what I am calling you to do. Now, if a person is ready, if they are willing, more often than not, he or she will respond with obedience and experience the power and the blessing of God. But what if when God calls you to a certain task, you run away as if you never heard him? What if? Today, we'll witness from the life of Jonah how God prepares us for the mission that he calls us to when we resist him. Because every time God asks us to do something and we say, I don't feel like it, and begin running in the opposite direction, it shows spiritual immaturity and complacence or even pride. When it happens in the life of an individual, this always ends up in a downward spiral both spiritually and more tangibly. When a church or the church does not remain true to God's mission, we become like the world. And church history shows that corporate disobedience often results in the formation of a cult or a church gone apostate. Now, whether it's individuals or churches, God disciplines us to make us usable in his hands. And the prophet Jonah lived during the time of Jeroboam II. He was one of Israel's most prosperous kings. And during the time of Jeroboam, the people of Israel and the priests of Israel alike grew complacent and they did things their own way in autonomy from God. And one of Jonah's contemporaries, the prophet Amos, describes the spiritual climate of Israel during this time. He records for us that God caused multiple adversities to draw his people back to himself. But each time, the Bible says, and the repeated complaint is, and yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. What would it take for Israel to return to the Lord? One of the things that it would take is for people to see the unfolding of God's purposes in the light of how God prepared his servants, the prophets, specifically Jonah in this context. And so the question we're asking of the text tonight is, how does God prepare to accomplish his mission in the world and in the lives of his erring missionaries? How does God prepare to accomplish his mission in the world and in the lives of his erring missionaries? I want us to notice from this text tonight four moves that God makes to get the attention of the world and of his servants. First of all, God redirects the lives of the servants he chooses. God redirects the lives of the servants he chooses. Notice that the Bible says in Jonah chapter 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid its fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah. Arise, go to Nineveh. He flouts the command of God. He arises and he goes in the completely opposite direction. Jonah 
whose name means dove, thinks that he can actually fly away and escape the presence of the Lord. This is one of Israel's prophets. He's supposed to know better. But like the many pagans around him, Jonah began to think that the God he served was only a territorial God whose influence extended only over Israel. And if somehow he got out of Israel, he would get out of God's coverage area. Jonah taught that. It seems like Jonah knew nothing of the attribute of God that we call the omnipresence of God. And if Jonah knew of God's omnipresence, he was in a practical sort of denial. And it's precisely when Jonah has too small a view of God, a wrong view of God in practice, it's precisely at this moment that God is going to redirect Jonah's life. Down he goes to Joppa, and down he goes into the ship. They set sail, and in verse 4, the Bible says, The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. God prepares a great wind and a great storm to redirect not just the ship, but Jonah's life. He is going to learn on the rough sea what he refused to learn about God on dry land. Namely, that God is present everywhere. The Phoenician mariners, these are Phoenician mariners. They cry out in fear to their gods. They're moving around helter-skelter on the ship, trying to unlade the ship to make it a little bit lighter. Meanwhile, our friend Jonah is selfishly asleep under deck. And the captain of the ship staggers to and fro as the boat rocks on the stormy sea. Seawater is splashing through the, the creaking boards of the vessel. And the captain goes below deck, and what does he see? Lo and behold, Jonah is asleep. And he cries out and says, how is it that you are sleeping? Get up and call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. This is what the prophet should be saying to people who are running away from God. Get up and call on God. This is what God said to Jonah. Get up and go to Nineveh. But in an ironic slap, to the calling and the profession of the prophet, the pagan captain asks Jonah to get up. Isn't it interesting how things have turned? And then these mariners, these Phoenician mariners, cast lots to determine the cause of this evil. And in the sovereignty of God, the lot falls on Jonah. God uses a wind, a storm, the roll of a dice, and Jonah's life is about to be completely redirected. They interrogate him. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Now they too become filled with fear and they ask Jonah, well, why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. I want us to jog back into history. On Sunday night, October 8th, 1871, D.L. Moody had just concluded preaching in a town here in downtown Chicago. And that night, Moody left the pulpit without asking people to surrender their lives to Christ. He thought that perhaps he could do that the next night because they had run out of time in the service. But that very night, the great Chicago fire broke out in Chicago. And it raged on for two more days and two more nights, destroying most of Chicago, including the hall that D.L. Moody preached in that night. Also, the um, Illinois Street Church, was, which was the precursor to the Moody Church, and also Moody's house, all destroyed. 
D.L. Moody would not get another chance to ask those people to surrender their lives to Christ. The fire was so devastating that apart from causing financial losses which were in the millions, 100,000 people were left homeless and about 1,000 people died. And the anguish of never being able to present Christ to those people again that he preached to that night seized and gripped D.L. Moody and he was shaken deeply. He resolved never again to preach without asking people to actually give their lives to Christ. The Lord used the great Chicago fire in the life of D.L. Moody to redirect his life and the lives of thousands of others who would believe on Christ through Moody's preaching after that. In the life of D.L. Moody, God used the great Chicago fire. With Jonah, God used a great wind and a great storm. And I wonder, my friend, what the Lord is using in your life tonight if indeed he's redirecting your life. If you are running away from God, I warn you humbly and in the love of Christ that he will redirect your life. And if it is possible, if we don't respond when God redirects our lives, that we could end up getting ruined. Now that could have happened with Jonah here, but we find that the grace of God went before him. Because notice secondly, that God rescues the lives of the servants he chooses. God rescues the lives of the servants he chooses. Well, here are these Phoenician mariners. They are terrified at the revelation of who Jonah's God is, that he is the creator of the sea and dry land. And they want to know from Jonah what to do with him in order that the sea may be made calm. And Jonah, very interestingly, asks them to throw him overboard. For, he says, I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. Very interesting. And I'd like to ask Jonah, if you know that you're the cause of this great storm, why don't you just jump overboard yourself? Why do you ask them to do it for you? Anyway, these Phoenician mariners, being experts at sailing, they try to muscle their way out of this by rowing harder and harder, but they fail. Finally, they acquiesce to Jonah's request, crying out to Jonah's God not to lay his blood to their charge, for you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. Then they cast Jonah into the sea, just as he, as he asked. And no sooner than Jonah's body breaks the skin of the water and he begins to sink, then the sea stands still. And these Phoenician mariners are flabbergasted when this happens. Now, if you studied missions, or if you are studying missions, offering to be thrown overboard as a method of missions is not something that, it, that is taught in seminary or in Bible college. And still we find that God uses this method and his erring missionary to rescue these mariners physically and also it seems spiritually because then the Bible says after this they feared the Lord greatly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Interesting. And all of this having happened, now Jonah needs rescuing. The Bible says, and the Lord prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. God prepared a great fish to rescue the life of his servant from physical death 
but also from spiritual apathy. And you know, God's ability to get people's attention and rescue them using nature was not limited to Jonah's time. In 1812, when, the, when Napoleon's grand army of France was set to attack Russia, the then Tsar of Russia, godless Alexander I, was suddenly caused to fear God. Alexander I of Russia was a vile man. So vile was he that he fired the then present Archbishop of the Orthodox Church and appointed a man who was known for his immorality as the new Archbishop in hope of getting some support for his own immorality. But surprise of surprises, when the new Archbishop took office, God got a hold of his heart and Alexander no longer had a support in his sin. Anyway, there is Moscow surrounded by the Grand Army of France and Napoleon. The, the spires of Moscow have already been set ablaze and defeat is inevitable. Godless Tsar Alexander I is desperate and so he enters a church there in St. Petersburg and he falls on his face before God in that church pleading for the deliverance of his nation. And in answer to this repentant ruler, God immediately sends the severe Russian winter. Napoleon's army can no longer take it and they're sent packing. God brought Alexander I to his knees and then prepared the great, uh, the severe Russian winter to rescue him and also to rescue all of Russia. And most often before we are rendered rescuable, we are first humbled by God whether individually or whether corporately. And you know, I find it remarkable that every revival or reformation in church history has first been preceded by some servant or servants of the Lord first realizing not just their, uh, their inadequacy and sinfulness, but also realizing the fact that the Lord alone can save, that salvation is of the Lord. Jonah realizes this in the belly of the fish. And in chapter 2, in Jonah's prayer, I want us to notice the very center, the pivot of this poetic prayer, and that is verse 6. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. Verse 6. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Notice that it says Jonah went down to these oceanic mountains. This is the third time that we're told Jonah goes down. Remember, he went down to Joppa, and he went down into the ship. God says, Jonah, you want to go down and away from me? Well, I'll let you go down, 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 triply so. Until there, at the bottommost depths of the sea, Jonah realized that God had preceded him, and there was no way that Jonah could escape God. Having been brought down, now notice what happens. He then turns in his prayer and he says, yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God, he says there in verse 6. In order to rescue this erring and rebellious child of his and bring him up, God often lets a person first go down because it's only in the uttermost depths where we cannot save ourselves and no one else can save us except God, that we realize that salvation is of the Lord. 
That's what Jonah learned. He learned it down in the depths that salvation is of the Lord. And dear brothers and sisters in Christ, that is the message that you and I are called to proclaim that salvation is of the Lord and of the Lord alone. Have you experienced this salvation that is of the Lord, that comes from the Lord? Have you been saved from the great spiritual deeps? The Bible says, as we read earlier from Ephesians chapter 2, that without God, we are dead. We are down in the grave. The Bible also says, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So the Gospels tell us. The Lord Jesus Christ was three days and three nights laid in the tomb, having died on the cross to pay the price for the salvation of all who believe in him. Salvation is of the Lord, yes, but the Lord himself paid with his own blood to secure that salvation for us. And just as the belly of the fish would not hold Jonah, so the grave could no longer hold the Lord Jesus Christ. He rose from the dead on the third day, validating our salvation and also validating his power to save. When we have experienced this salvation that I'm preaching about, that comes from the Lord, and when we have the absolute assurance that we have been rescued from death and raised to eternal life, it is then that we emerge ready to be used by the Lord. Have you experienced that salvation that comes from the Lord, and do you have the assurance that you have been raised from death to life? Notice with me thirdly. That God redeems the people his servants serve. God redeems the people his servants serve. Well, there is Jonah in the belly of the great fish. And at the command of the Lord, the fish vomits Jonah on land. And he is given a second chance to obey God. The Bible says in chapter 3, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. That right there, my friends, is the reckless grace of God. The word of the Lord coming to Jonah a second time. Now, if God had no grace, he would have been done with this disobedient prophet. He would have let him drown. But he is a God of grace who is patient and who forgives his children, not just a second time, or a third time, or a fourth time, but until we are prepared and willing to obey him, like his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder if you're here tonight, and in some particular matter, if you've disobeyed God in your life. Have you disobeyed God when it comes to relationships? Have you disobeyed God in ministry or in missions? In whatever area you may have disobeyed the Lord, the word of the Lord comes to you again today saying, arise. That's why it's no mistake that you are here this evening listening to this sermon. And it's no mistake that you who will be listening to it in the future will listen to it. The Bible says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. And this time... Jonah does arise, and very quickly he arrives in Nineveh, quicker than usual. Now, even before Jonah opens his mouth to preach, 
we find that God has already prepared this great city. To accomplish his mission, God has prepared a great wind and a storm, a great fish, and now we find that God prepares this great city also. The Bible says, then he, Jonah, cried out and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That was it. That was his sermon. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Just eight words in English and only five in the Hebrew. Talk about being brief in preaching. He never even asks them to repent. But amazingly, at the preaching of Jonah, the Bible says, the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. They believed on God. And it's not the preaching of Jonah that did it. It was God who had been preparing these people even before Jonah reached them. And the preacher was only a channel of God's power that completely transformed them. The king of Nineveh himself is clothed, we're told, in sackcloth and ashes. And he proclaims throughout the city that neither man nor animal should eat food or even drink water. He asks his people to cry mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Now, please understand when this king talks about their evil ways and their violence, he is talking about one of the most violent and cruel, imperious civilizations ever in human history, the ancient Assyrians. The ancient Assyrians killed their enemies mercilessly. They decapitated them and built mountains of heads at the entrance of the city so as to scare any other enemies. Their enemies were impaled alive, skinned alive, burned alive, and far worse things that cannot be mentioned from a church pulpit. Evil and violence was the norm in their day. And you know, many of Jonah's own relatives, the Jews, were at the receiving end of this violence. No wonder Jonah wanted nothing to do with them. No wonder he ran in the opposite direction the first time. Nevertheless, the Bible says God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. God redeems these people Jonah preaches to. That's the reckless grace of God again, that he redeems these seemingly irredeemable and violent people. And I wonder when we are prompted by the Holy Spirit to speak to people in the great city of Chicago, people who are lost in sin, who don't know the difference between their right and left hand, whether it's a few words or whether it's many words, whether it's to one person or to thousands of people, I wonder how many people we might find in heaven believe on God because you and I as Christians warn them of God's wrath to come and also uh, give them the good news of the love of God in Christ. I wonder how many of us are willing. If we are willing, you will find that God has already been preparing people, the people that you talk to, for the words that he gives you to speak at that very moment. Jonah, he was willing. 
But there was, we find, a missing motive even within the willingness of Jonah. Because fourthly, we find that God reproves his servants who lack compassion. God reproves his servants who lack compassion. And here is the point of the entire narrative. Nineveh repents and turns to God. And instead of rejoicing, the Bible says that it displeased Jonah and he became angry. I don't know of any missionary or evangelist who would become angry when they're, when they're, with the people that they are serving to turn to Christ. But it displeased Jonah, the Bible says, and he became angry, very angry. And he begins dialoguing with God. And he says, I knew this would happen. I knew that if I went there and if I preached to them because you are merciful and because you are gracious and compassionate, I knew that you would spare them. And now since they have repented and since you have spared them, now I want to die. <laughs> the Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? He didn't even have to say good. If he said, do you have any reason to be angry, that would be enough. But he says, do you have good reason to be angry? Now, humanly, again, we cannot be so easily dismissive of Jonah's anger. Remember, these cruel Assyrians had murdered some of Jonah's own people. So for the sake of understanding what's going on here, please imagine this with me. Just imagine. Imagine that you were a Jew who lived under Hitler's regime. And what if, just hypothetically speaking, after all the atrocities that he committed against your own people, the Jews, God one day finally decides to forgive Hitler? How would you, as a Jew, feel in your heart? How would you feel? Would not the fleshly urge for revenge tend to douse any flicker of compassion flamed by the Holy Spirit of God in you? I know that it would in me if I were in that place. And I think something similar is happening with Jonah here. Jonah goes outside the city. He sits east of it. And he builds there a little shade to cover himself. And he watches for what he hopes is the decimation of Nineveh. And as he's watching, instead, the Bible says, in contrast, the Lord appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah. I'm in chapter 4 by the way, in verse 6, the Lord appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort, from his discomfort. And suddenly Jonah rejoices. By the way, I want to ask us, what do we rejoice and what do we cry over? Do we rejoice or cry over petty comforts and discomforts, such as the pews in our church, perhaps, while people in India and the Middle East, for example, are being, as of today, being evicted from their church buildings and sometimes being killed for the faith? Think about that. The next day, God prepares a worm to destroy the plant. And when the sun rises, God prepares a scorching east wind. Jonah becomes faint and says, death is better to me than life. You see, God prepared the plant, the worm, and the wind to reprove Jonah and show him that his anger toward God was unwarranted and instead that he needed compassion. Then God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? This is the second time God asks Jonah. 
Jonah replies, I do have good reason to be angry, even to death. Then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know the difference between their right hand and left as well as many animals? And the question remains unanswered. Why? So that we may answer, not just in word, but in deed. If Jonah had compassion on the perishing plant, should God not have compassion on perishing people? God should, and God does, we're told, have compassion on perishing people. And God calls us also to cultivate compassion for the lost, just as we would cultivate a plant. God calls us to cultivate compassion for the lost. You see, please hear me now. The Lord is not so bothered about his message that he forgets to conform the messenger to his message. Not so bothered about his message that he forgets to conform the messenger to his message. God does not just pursue the people he sends his messengers to with his message. No, he also pursues the messenger who carries his message. He's also pursuing the preachers and the teachers and the missionaries who carry his message. And I would just like to say as one who is called to preach that I have often sorely felt the chastening hand of God in my own life to make me more like the Lord Jesus Christ. I've felt that and I've often remained in the dark about what God is doing in the various circumstances of my own life. So I can relate just a little bit here with Jonah. I wonder if you can. Can you relate with what God is doing in Jonah's life here? And for every Christian here, here are these wise words credited to anonymity, which I hope will bring you comfort. Perhaps you've heard them before. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and so bold a man that all the world shall be amazed, watch his methods, watch his ways. How he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects. How he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay which only God can understand while his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands. How he bends but never breaks when his good he undertakes. How he uses whom he chooses and with every purpose fuses him. By every act induces him to try his splendor out. Only God knows what he's about. God knows what he is doing. God knows what he is doing, making you and I more like the Lord Jesus Christ, whose message we carry, causing us to become obedient to him and filled with compassion for people. So it is that God prepares us to accomplish the mission that he appoints us to. And he does it by redirecting our lives, by rescuing our lives, redeeming the people we serve, and reproving us when we lack compassion. As we close, I'd like to ask you tonight, if God is calling you to some specific mission in life and you are found running in the opposite direction from God, if so, I want to urge you 
not to run away from God, but to run to him instead, which is far better for you. God is giving you another chance to rededicate yourself and to accomplish the mission that he has given you for his glory. Maybe someone here tonight needs to yield to God's call to full-time ministry or full-time missions. Perhaps it is a personal situation that God is calling you to obedience in. Or perhaps it could be that you're here and you've never given your life to Christ and God is calling you to give your life to Christ. I'd like to ask our prayer partners to get up a little bit earlier than usual and go to the front. And if you sense that God is calling you to obey him in some way, whether that is personally, in some way you need to be obedient to him, or whether he's calling you to give your life to full-time ministry or missions, or whether God is calling you to give your life to Christ for the first time. Even as I end, and even as we sing the song of response that we will sing, I'd like for you to consider not leaving this place tonight without responding in obedience to God. And so, as the prayer partners come up, and as we prepare to sing, I'd like to just say that when we stand before God one day, we don't want the account of our lives closing with a question as it did with Jonah. Jonah's life closed with a question because you and I, if our lives end with a question, we won't have an answer to give God just as Jonah had no answer to give God. Rather, we want the accounts of our lives closing with words from the Lord Jesus Christ that show that we have fulfilled the mission that he has called us to. And we want the accounts of our lives to end with those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Father, even in the silence of this moment, as your word is working in the hearts of people, I ask that you will do what only you can do. I ask that if there is someone here who is unsaved, that you would cause them to be born again and give their life to Christ. I ask if there is someone here wrestling with personal disobedience, cause them to repent and run to you. And if somebody has been struggling with the call to missions or ministry, do that in their life as well. Cause them to give their life to you completely. And do this for the honor and the glory of your son's name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.